Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambhudasa Homage to the Blessed, Noble and Perfectly Enlightened One. Sadanto suche doye hola hudi san miao san putoshi. Namo sadanto suche doye hola hudi san miao san putoshi. Wushang shen shen weinyafa the unsurpassed, deep, profound, subtle, wonderful Dharma in a hundred thousand million eons is difficult to encounter. Now that I've come to receive and hold it within my sight and hearing, I bow to fathom the thus come one's true and actual meaning. Good evening, Venerable Master, friends in the Dharma. We're here at the Berkeley Buddhist Monastery. It's the... Uh, 20th of March and Saturday night. It's time for our Sutra lecture and I'd like to invite you all to join with me in chanting the name of the Sutra and the Buddhas and the Bodhisattvas. It's here in the front cover of your text. Sneeze into the microphone.
All right, please join me on page 88, 89 in your text. You'll have a text in front of you, it looks like this. Is that what you want? Page 88 and page 89. the second from the bottom stanza both the Chinese and the English so the Chinese begins with Changxing Da Tsumin and the English is they ever use great kindness and sympathy To the right, they ever use great kindness and sympathy. Faith and respect their constant attitudes. The virtue of shame and remorse they have in full. Thus goodness increases in their hearts by day and by night. By night and by day. Good. Okay, let's look at the Chinese and chant. Chang Xing Da they ever use great kindness and sympathy they ever use great kindness and sympathy faith and respect their constant attitudes faith and respect their constant attitudes their virtue of shame and remorse they have in full virtue of shame and remorse they have in full thus goodness increases in their hearts by night and by day Thus goodness increases in their hearts by night and by day. We're sounding more and more like a Methodist church. It's great. Mm. Actually, to tell you the truth, it's, um, I do have a model for that, which is uh, the Kamaldolese Benedictine Hermitage up in, down, down in Big Sur, where Father Cyprian has uh, put the... Uh, the daily chanting of the office, the, mm, the psalms into psalm tones, which are very much like that. And when he does it, it sounds, although it's English, which is new, right, in the Catholic world, to have the, the office entirely in English, but it has that ring. He's, he's found the 
where when you hear it, it sounds like you've been hearing it all your life. That's when you know you have a really good melody, is it's fresh, but it sounds familiar. That's, that's it. And when he's, he does, you go, mm, that's, that hits the spot. That's what we're looking for. So bit by bit, we'll get there. We're talking about bodhisattvas. Bodhisattvas are the topic of the Ten Grounds chapter of the Flower of Dharma Sutra. Bodhisattvas are these awakened beings who are unselfish. People like you and me, but their every action, their every thought is for the purpose of benefiting others. And bodhisattvas come from people, so it shouldn't seem too far away from us. And every thought that we turn away from me and mine to us and ours, we're approaching the bodhisattvas. This text is a handbook. It's a how-to. This is what bodhisattvas do. Take a look and and, uh, measure up and uh, see and get inspired and see how it it could work out in our lives. That's what the the Ten Grounds is is about. It's no exaggeration to say that this is just meant to be a, a, a doc file, an instruction manual, as much as... There's a seat in front? As, as much as uh, how to, to program your VCR and how to set up your lawnmower for the spring grass here in California. That's, that's what the, uh, the Ten Grounds chapter is all about. So, Okay. Um, first stanza tonight says, Chang Xing Da Si Min. They always practice big zi, kindness, mean is empathy. So kindness is they say that the definition of kindness is kindness to beings even those who you don't feel a connection to, even those you don't have an affinity with. So unconditional kindness. And then mean is a substitute here for bay, which is straight out compassion, karuna, this word min here is more like empathy, but I think it's the same. I think it's probably used just the same way. So, great kindness and compassion. How do you define compassion? They call it tongti, same body, great compassion. So, kindness is kindness impartially. It's kindness to all creatures. And tongti, Compassion means identity. You're just the same. You see the sameness in everybody. So it's tong ti dabe, same body, great compassion. So they constantly practice great kindness and compassion. That's, that's what defines a bodhisattva. Furthermore, what else do bodhisattvas have? Bodhisattvas heng yo. Xin gong jing. Heng is the that's my f- the first word in my name. All of the monks in our association who uh, left home under Master Xuanhua uh, have the, the first name Heng. Constant is what it means. Always. Ever is it so. It's always this way. Heng um, parallels the first word in the first line. Chang. Chang is eternally, constantly, always. Heng. Same, same idea. Happens every time. Hung, what? Yo, have, possess, xin, gong, 
Jing. Faith. Um, faith here, this word in Chinese covers a bunch of words. So integrity is also in this word. They constantly have integrity. You could say trustworthiness. They can be trusted. So it's quality that you have. I believe in something. I have a, a faithful mind, but I myself am able to be trusted. So integrity. They always have hangyou, always have integrity, gong jing, and respect for others. Um, if anybody wants to do a, a, some research into a Buddhist concept, this would be a good one. What does it mean to be respectful? To respect others? Why would that be interesting? Because um, in, in street culture, respect is something very much valued. And its absence will get you shot dead on the streets of Oakland if you diss somebody. Dis means disrespect. You lack it. So if you don't have gong jing, you're in trouble. So people expect that you will automatically respect them. We want to be respected. What does it mean here on this page versus or together with what it means on the street? Interesting question. What's the difference? What's the same? So if somebody, if you say, uh, show me respect, I deserve respect. What do you want from that? Is it just because you breathe that you're worthy of respect? Because you drive a car? Because you wear clothes? Because you have a credit card in your pocket? You're worthy of respect? Or is it something different? That's, that's an interesting question to me. What does it mean to be worthy of respect? One of the titles of the Buddha. Worthy of respect. Worthy of offerings. And I'm not going to define it. I'm going to leave it open. Why are you worthy of respect? Can, is it behavior-based? Can you do something that makes you unworthy because you didn't behave up to expectations? Maybe. Maybe. When do you lose it? When do you lose that quality of respect, respectability? Right? Think of all these words that we have based on this idea of respectable. This is a self-respecting person. Self-respect. Lack of respect, loss of respect, low self-esteem. Man, a lot, a lot of topics are centered around this notion of respect. Very interesting. Uh, we have two more seats down in front here, by the way. If anybody doesn't want to hide into the back and wind up down the hall, we have seats down here in front. Do you dare come down in front? So, so lots of questions about respect. How interesting. Constantly have trustworthiness, integrity, and the ability to respect others, or um, self-respect. Suppose we just use that. Do, you res do we respect ourselves? Okay. Interesting idea. Um, if tonight you don't have a sutra text, if we have run out, notice that we are down to the last page. So we're in the cycle of renewing our text. We will have more. Don't, don't despair. We have to add pages, and in the process of adding, we will also add booklets. We're going 
Uh, we're translating as we go. We're creating our texts. By the time we're done with this chapter, it should be quite a hefty volume. So that will be a good problem to have. They ever use great kindness and sympathy, faith and respect their constant attitudes. So the way it's translated indicates an internal quality. They always have this internal um, outlook of trusting others and also self-respect. The virtue of shame and remorse they have in full. Really com- concise Chinese. Really, every word carries a lot of weight. So we only have five characters and we have to, to convey the idea. What is it? Faith, full of, replete with, every bit, just round, faith, full of what? Gongda, the virtue of, the quality of. What is the quality? Tan kui. Shame and remorse. Mm. <clears throat> if I were to translate this, these two ideas so that people could, could warm up to them, I would just say soft heart. Soft heart. Um, think about somebody who's hard-hearted. When I am hard-hearted... I have no shame, no remorse. I don't reflect. I don't look at the things I've done and say, could I have done it different? Could I have done it better? Why? Hard heart. It's like, get out of my way. You know, I'm not looking inside the slightest bit. I'm troubled and I'm in your face. That's, a hard, that's the opposite of these ideas. A soft heart goes both inside and outside and says, you know, I realized that mm, I got a lot of cleaning up to do. If I could take my heart out, drop it into the washer and put it on gentle cycle and you know, add some detergent, I'd be much better off if I could clean my heart up that way. Because you look at it, you realize the human heart, well, that's not the organ, but the human heart, the mind, is, I think, always moving towards purity. My experience of my own mind at times of stillness is a wish to renew. Kind of like what? Like spring. These two words, tankwe, is the attitude of spring. Soft. And my experience of my mind when it's at its quietest is that it likes to clean. It, likes, it moves towards purity. Moves towards a sense of wholeness. Mm, it's the same feeling of what when you have a stone in your shoe. When you've got a stone in your shoe and you're walking, what do you want to do? You want to take your boot shoe off, take the stone out, and then keep walking, right? Because there's that sense of every step is not you. Know, you kind of pull back. The or, the organism pulls back. Take the stone out of the shoe and say, ah, there. The mind is the same. When I have something I'm ashamed of, when I know I did it bad, could do it better, there's that same sense of, I want to clean that out, wash that clean. Say, spit it out and return to a sense of integration, a sense of wholeness and function. 
That's what these two words mean. Tzankwe. The only way we get to that place is a soft heart. A soft heart. So that's why I think this is a good translation of Tzankwe. Literally, it means a sense of um, shame before people who you admire. Virtuous people, your mom, your grandpa, your teacher. A sense of shame. And then a sense, the kwe part is willingness to change. So you look within, you go, mm, not, not something I'm proud of. I got a stone in my shoe. I've got something in my heart. And then a wish to spit it out and return to purity. There's something wonderful in the human organism that allows us to renew. I, I wrote my dissertation on these two words. My whole doctoral dissertation was on Buddhist repentance. And what it comes down to is a soft heart. If our hearts are soft, we, we can renew. We can do it and refresh. And there, there is a time when you say, yeah, mm, the stone's gone. I can, I can walk now. I'm using 100% of my lung capacity because I spit out the smoke that was in there, that I put in there. Um, the problem is, this is scary territory. It's really scary to face our faults. It's really scary. And if we don't have a model, mostly we won't. However, this is, this is fascinating because modern neurological research is showing that kindness is contagious. And kindness includes a willingness to go, yeah, I blew it, but, you know, I'll try better. I'll try again. That if we see somebody, if there's some adult mostly who is willing to put up with the embarrassment, the discomfort of saying, you know, I didn't do very well. And that vulnerability, it's not, you know, tough, get on, get on my way. Is different from that? If one adult is willing to do that in our presence, other people can too. We have to see the model of softening up and saying, dang, you know, that's my worst habit, but I'm going to change. That's contagious. That sense of kindness and softness. So it's hard to find. Something. I mean, look at TV. I'm, I'm not a TV watcher, but can you think of any TV series in the last... 15 years where the, the, the male role model is soft-hearted and goes, no, man, I really screwed up, but I'm going to change. The best one that I know, and I'm not a TV watcher, is Cosby. Right? Cosby, that's why he's such a good dad, such a wonderful... Maybe Cosby hasn't been on TV for a long time. Maybe by saying that, I'm dating myself. I don't know. What is it? 80s? 80s? Okay, well, 20 years late. That's all right. You know, so... Okay. So, that's the point, is there aren't very many. Most of it is, bang, bang, bang. We're not only hard, but we're deadly, right? We're, we're like poison. We're like scorpions. They're a sting. And to take that, to take, think of the, the, the barrel of a gun is the opposite of tanque, right? That's death dealing. Watch out for me. You know, but if you take that gun and just disarm it and say, no, I, I admit that I, jeez, you know. I know I'm not. I screw up all the time. But I don't quit and I come back. 
That's this virtue. And th- these bodhisattvas are bait. They're full of that ability to go, geez, why is that good? It's because it's the energy of life. It nurtures and it renews. It renews. Here's the, my very, very best story about that, which is just, I saw this. I saw it in Toledo, Ohio, believe it or not. And we have a, I told this story before, but not recently, so. Stop me if you've heard it. Don't. Okay. Let me tell it anyway. It's a good story. Worth retelling. Good stories are worth retelling. We have a, a, a park at the end of the little street that I grew up on in uh, central Toledo. It's called um, Ottawa Park. And there's a creek that goes through it called Ten Mile Creek. Ten Mile Creek. Ten Mile Creek is shallow and it freezes every winter. Freezes solid. And it's just a scraggly little creek. It's not very big to begin with. But it was just ten minutes walk from my house and so we could go check out the creek. And from about November, it was solid. You walk on it, skate on it. You know, really frozen solid. And then there was a day in spring, right about now, right about March, where the weather had been warm enough, long enough, that the ice cracked. And it was the most amazing thing because the ice, when it cracked, made a noise. I had no idea because it's a solid sheet of ice And there was a time when the weather was warm enough and water and temperature interact and the ice would go and you'd hear Ten Mile Creek was was speaking. It was speaking thunder sounds of spring as the ice thawed. And it would thaw in a funny way and then crack like that, but there was a, some sort of a specific tension on the sheet of ice that as it cracked, it would make a like that. And you come the next day, and what do you hear? Gurgle, 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 blur, 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 blur. The creek is back. Spring had come, and the water was flowing again. And there was that dramatic moment between ice and water that was the virtue of Tan Kui the virtue of shame and remorse, willing to soften, willing to admit, go through that discomfort, vulnerable time when you say, yeah, not really the best. I know it's not my best, but I can improve. Spring is back. Another spring and summer and autumn of flowing water. Before what? Winters freeze. And it was the, joy, the joyful part was, hey, guess what? Spring is back and Ten Mile Creek, by golly, is alive again. The power of repentance is the power of spring and renew, renewal. Now, how many of us have been in a relationship? It could be with mom or dad or with, you know, maybe with your kids, maybe with your spouse or your significant other. When you know you screwed up, 
and you know you covered over and refuse to admit it. And at one point, you just said, no, I, you know, my fault. I did it. It's my fault. I'm sorry. I'm going to change. And with that, suddenly you were back in conversation. She said, he said, no problem. It's okay. I knew it all along. It's all right. Right? You, have you done that? If you, have, you don't have to tell me. But that's, that's a moment when Ten Mile Creek comes back to life because it's spring again. And as long as we hold on tight to that, no, I didn't, you know, that covering over the mistake, it's ice, it's winter, and the relationship is stuck. But just that ability to say, no, mm, I did it, mm, I'm sorry, but I'm going to change. Then it's like, oh, okay, humanity. We're back, right? We're at the best part of the human heart, the softness of the human heart is back. Spring has come, winter's over, life renews itself. That's the power of repentance. Very cool. I mean, this is humanity at its very best. Is the ability to say, no, my mistake, I'd like to change. My, my bad, you know, to be able to say that. That's the power. Now, um, this is very much a teaching of the Buddha and our Bodhisattva Samantabhadra, who is on his white elephant over here to your right, up there in the window, he's best seen at night from outside. And he is also, if you'll follow, right there. This is Samantabhadra, Bodhisattva, on his elephant. He gives us ten practices that are said to be the kings of vows. And the ten, uh, we... we go over them frequently. They're so important that in the monastery we chant them every day, every morning. And the teacher, Master Chengguan, Master Qingnian, um, from the Tang Dynasty, goes through in a commentary. He says, now, the ten are really important. Every one of them is really important. However, if you had to get rid of a few, he said, we could do with nine. And he goes, and he explains them. If you, could, if you had to get rid of another one, you could do with eight. And you'd probably still have the essence. And then he goes down and down. He says, finally, you know, there are two that you can't do without. If you have these two, you have the whole thing. What are they? Number four and number ten. Number four is chan hui ye And number ten is pu jie hui xiang. Repenting of errors, your karmic faults. And number ten, transferring merit and virtue. He says, if you can do those two, all of the merit and virtue, mind you, all ten are best. If you have those two, if you can break up the ice in the spring and then share the goodness, send it out with a kind heart to everybody, you've got all the merit. So number four and number ten are the two you finally can't do without, although he's not suggesting that you skip any. But if you have two, the whole thing is there. Repenting of karmic errors, chan hui ye zhang. And then, pu jie hui xiang, transferring the merit everywhere. So those are, of the ten, those two are the most important. So here, what does it say? Chan kui gong de bei. Ri ye zeng shan fa. By day and by night, increasing their wholesome dharmas. Literally, their good practices. Thus, goodness increases in their hearts by day and by night. 
Um, the, look at the translation here, and somebody could critique the translation and say, how did you get that? How did you get the English out of the Chinese? What does it say? Day, night, increase wholesome dharmas. The English says goodness. It's not literally shan fa. So those of you who don't have a text, let me read it for you, okay? The Chinese says day, night, increase good dharmas, literally. English says thus goodness increases in their hearts by night and by day. The in their hearts part is not in the Chinese. The goodness has been translated from shanfa, wholesome dharmas. Is that a loose translation? No, it's an interpretation, meaning the goodness is not necessarily in the behavior. The goodness is in their heart. Why? Because constantly they ever use great kindness and sympathy. Their faith and respect are a constant attitude. The virtue of shame and remorse they have in full. Thus, their goodness increases. So the first three lines are the reason why the goodness in their heart grows. They have really good hearts. That's what makes a bodhisattva. Isn't that interesting? It's not that they can sit down and meditate for 24 hours and not get up. It's not that they have psychic powers and they know what's going to happen before it does or they can see your past lives. And that may be true. But what the sutra is doing when it describes bodhisattvas, it says... They're good-hearted people. Bodhisattvas are good-hearted people. And I point that out, emphasize it that way. Why? Because there's a lot of people come to Buddhist practice and work diligently to get something like psychic power. And in the West, when I explain that, people go, what? What are you talking about? This is not like, you know, voodoo or sorcery, is it? And you go to a Chinese audience and they go, what do you mean? Every monk has psychic power. You've seen the Kung Fu movies, right? All the monks go... <laughs> See? Seen them. Seen the movies, right? <laughs> and things happen. The light comes out. And in a case there's any kind of combat, they, they fight with that combat. You know, they blast each other with, from a distance with their, their chi, right? Chi is a weapon. That's what monks do, don't they? We've seen them. You know. Well, the sutra, I mean, the sutra does talk about psychic powers. If you stick around, we'll get to that chapter. But here it says what? It says goodness. Kindness. It doesn't say anything about having great big beads and going, Amitabha. You know, giant beads and a big staff. Eyebrows like that. Amitabha. So those are the psychic those are the psychic power cinema monks, right? The Kung Fu monks. They're out there, that image is out there. Explain that to the West and people go, Is this a circus? It's a sideshow, right? Where's the Buddhism? They say. Okay. Well, interesting, because you go to Thailand, that image is totally not there. Monks don't have that behavior. It's a Chinese cultural image. Japan is different. Korea is different. So in the West right now, before Buddhism has really set its image, we're in that 
interaction phase. We're on the bridge phase. What are monks in the West going to be like? They're all going to have laptops, right? And they're going to be tapping away in their laptops. That's the, the Western monk. No, probably not. Um, we don't know yet what monks are going to be like. In China, they have these psychic abilities. The sutra says bodhisattvas are kind. Their goodness increases by day and by night. So, I point that out, emphasize it that way to say, do we want to be like bodhisattvas in the sutra? If so, work on great kindness, integrity, self-respect, shame, remorse, and let our goodness grow. Good-hearted people, human beings. That's what the bodhisattva, how the bodhisattvas appear in the sutras. Okay. I've been uh, collecting stories. Got one from Belfast, Northern Ireland. Steve says, Today, on the streets of Belfast, I didn't give money to the homeless guy. I passed. He's there most days. I usually do give him something. But today, I did something different, says Steve. I bought some sandwiches. I sat down beside him on the street and talked to him for ten minutes. It seemed to mean so much more to him that somebody was listening to what he had to say. Furthermore, the things he said taught me a lot. I hope we'll have many more chats. Says Steve from Belfast. How interesting. So, putting a dollar in the can of the person who says, it's a bad change, it's a bad change, that's good. That's not a bad thing at all to, to help someone with money. Steve in Belfast bought some sandwiches, sat down beside the person. That's already kind of, you know, a little, a little on the edge there. What if they're, they have lice or head lice or something? But he sat down and talked to him and listened. Not only did he touch the heart of that individual who was down on his luck, but he also says he learned something. Risky. That's really risky. But, you know, bodhisattvas are soft-hearted. They're not hard-hearted. So there we go. In goodness increases in their hearts by day and by night. And certainly, remember last week I said I'm going to uh, try to learn from Shurfu and encourage us all towards more mitzvot, good deeds. Said Master Shrenhua, do more good deeds. So you could interpret this line as their good deeds grow every day. I translated it as in their hearts. The goodness in their hearts increase. Okay. Uh, questions, comments? The Clearly the topic on uh, 
repent, shame and remorse, repentance and reform is a, touches us. I, I can feel it. It certainly touches me. And there are many, many, many ways to do it. Let me suggest one. If we want to do, if we want to really look into that practice of repentance and reform, in May of this year coming up, starting on May 16th, May 16th, which is the Buddha's birthday this year, May 16th, um, the 10,000 Buddha's repentance ceremony begins at City of 10,000 Buddhas, May 16th, coming right up, you know. The 10,000 Buddha's repentance is probably the most formal and involved way that we can practice repentance. It's 21 days, if they, 21 days more or less, it's three weeks, when with, together with 600 people, sometimes, you bow to 10,000 Buddhas. Can you imagine that? It works out to about somewhere between four and 500 bows a day. It's amazing to move your body through space that many times. Slowly doing this yoga where you bow down to a bench like these. Stand up, chant the name, do it again. That side bows and chants. They stand up, you bow. You stand up, they bow. It's profoundly changing. That experience of the 10,000 Buddhas repentance ceremony is powerful medicine. That is Laundry soap for the soul. And that really gets in there and scrubs deep. Plus, the first three days, you're sure you're going to die. There's no doubt about it. Your knees are there to tell you, you are cruel. You are, you know, your knees are, your, the knees say, you're abusing me. That's illegal in this state. I'm going to report you. Your knees do everything to get you to stop because it feels like you're dying. It's hard to bow that way, especially if you start from a standing start. That is to say, you haven't bowed before. If you show up the first day and launch into 500 bows, whoa, bring out the gurney. Roll me home. I can't walk anymore. Right? So then the second day, you come out and you know you're crazy. This is, this is insane. What kind of sane person does this? You know. And the third day, Words can't express it. It's shobutulai, you know. And then the fourth day, strangely, something happens, and these wings sprout on your back, and you, before you know it, you're bowing like that. Your body feels light. Your heart is, you know, expansive. You, you forget that the person over here is chanting off key, odd tune. You know, you forget about that. Maybe it's unsanitary. I shouldn't. T- I should hold my breath when I bow. You know, all that stuff goes away. You don't even think of it. You're bowing like a bird flies. It's amazing. The trans- Those first three days are misery. <laughs> the fourth day, hey, I can do this. This is who knew, you know. And you're pretty much good from then on. It's, it happens to the monks, happens to everybody. You, Those first three days are tough. Anyway, 21 days of bowing. And the other thing that happens that's way better than trying to do it alone is there's an energy of the group. There's a communal energy that happens when you bow that gives you strength. It's amazing how much you gain from the, the bowing with the group. So that's a profoundly moving experience is bowing 10,000 bows. Actually, 
If you count, and there are people who do this thing, you wind up with 11,111. It's not E1. It's not 10,000. And it includes some Pracheka Buddhas, Bija folk. So, uh, that's one incredibly adorned, ornate, uh, formal way to do repentance. But, the Tankui that we're talking about in the Bodhisattva's heart is as simple as saying, no, I messed up. I, I, I disappointed myself. I didn't live up to my standards. I'm going to change and try again. My mistake. That's the full thing. That's not lacking at all. The 10,000 Buddhas is a way to do it in a very formal, beautiful, powerful way. But the basic movement is, nope, can't improve. Okay, so, all right, going to move on here, down at the bottom. Um, that first character is read, it, are we going to read that yao? Uh, okay. Yao fa zhen shi li bu ai shou zhu yu si wei so wen fa yuan li qu zhao heng. That needs a G. It's not him, it's heng. heng. They enjoy the real benefits of Dharma. Pursuing desires has lost its appeal for them. They reflect upon the Dharma they have heard. They no longer grasp or cling. Okay. They enjoy the real benefits of Dharma. Pursuing desires has lost its appeal for them. They reflect upon the Dharma they have heard. They no longer grasp or cling. More about bodhisattvas, just describing their character. What is a bodhisattva like? Here's what a bodhisattva is like. They enjoy the real benefits of Dharma. Jun Shi Li, that's that's my name. I am from Master Shenhua. I got pointed to Jun Shi as thing I should become. They la yao le another way to read it, they enjoy, they delight in Dharma Fa. True, real advantages. The genuine advantages of Dharma, they they love, they enjoy, they delight in. However, on the other hand, they do not love, that's the word for love, enjoy, you could also say, receiving the many desires. So, they like that, they don't like that. Bodhisattvas are such that they do not love desire. You don't find that many bodhisattvas in Reno. Hanging out in Las Vegas. Um, places where you, where you go to play, as long as play involves... 
getting good stuff, i.e., let's, let's look at, okay, let's not do that. Let's look at this way. What, does, what are the zhu yu? What are the desires that bodhisattvas don't like to take on? Let's say states of the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, and mind that we pursue and grab. Those would be desires. It doesn't mean that bodhisattvas go through life squeezing everything out. I don't want to look, I don't want to listen. I don't taste anything. That's, that's aversion. That's the other side of it. They also, what would you say? They don't love obstructing sensations. The key here, it, this, is, this, I, this is where Dharma gets subtle. Right? This is the wonderful part of Buddha Dharma. It's not that there's anything wrong with Reno. It's not that there's anything wrong with Las Vegas or Harrah's Club or the Sands Casino. The fault is not in the place or the behavior. The fault from the point of view of the Buddha who teaches us how to end suffering. Key, key to this, right? The Sutra is not slamming what people love. People love Las Vegas. People love Reno. It's, it's America's playground. Okay? How come these sutras are here saying bodhisattvas don't love it? The problem is, the Buddha said, are you interested in ending suffering? I was, said the prince, so I went off in the woods and figured it out. I sat still until I saw through that stuff. If you agree with me that that was worthwhile, then here's how to do it. From the point of view of a meditator, says the Buddha, you can't chase after things that tingle the eye, things that tingle the ear, things that tingle the tongue, the nose, the body, the mind. You can't go chasing after them, wanting more and more, better, higher, upgraded, intensified, escalated, if my life is based on escalating things that tingle my senses, then Las Vegas is the place for me. Or your own TV. Flat panel, wide screen, high def TV. Right? We escalated to HD, to high def, precisely because we wanted to stare. I confess, I went to see Avatar in a theater. I confess. Oh, me too. I was determined to see what, why Avatar is the highest grossing film in history. Okay, I went to watch. And I was disappointed because I didn't get glasses. I didn't get the, the theater I went to was a AMC, you know, uh, what do they call it? A multiplex. And I, I didn't see any glasses. I, I was the only person in the theater. Okay, there was like nobody else. It was an afternoon showing and it had been on the screen still for how many weeks? And nobody was there, me. So I went back out to the, the popcorn counter and said, uh, am I supposed to get glasses? She said, no, it's, it's regular. Whatever regular means. So, it's, you know, so I kept wanting to see the 3D effect and I didn't, didn't see it. Okay. My experience of Avatar was like it was really a, a narrow, not, it was a shallow theater. I haven't been to a theater to watch a movie for 12 years. First time in 12 years. Okay. 
very shallow. So here I am sitting like 10 rows back and I have to turn my head to see the whole screen. <laughs> you know, and you have to surrender. You can't, I mean, I could have shut my eyes, but it's too big. The impact on the senses is too much. You have to take it in and that and the, the sound, man. I am not used to boom boxes that big. It, when people pick up their kids here, they often come with the kaboom, 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 kaboom. And we're sitting in the dining room having lunch and shaking with the bass, you know. I hear that, but mostly they pick the kid up and go away. I was in that theater for two hours and 40 minutes hearing, you know. And when the, the giant bomber comes around the big tree, you know, and the, the, you know, like, it's like it was hugely impacting on my eyes and ears, my skin. And you realize the power of movies to go in and imprint your consciousness with those collective images. The Avatar movie is a collective image that many people in our generation have now had. Okay, so I was like, and you, you can't, you either you stand up and leave if you're not going to surrender to that experience because it's so big and the sound <laughs> shaking your body. Very powerful. So there I am and I'm thinking, I have not had a level of sensory stimulation like that since I was last in a theater. And now, how big is your TV? 53 inches? You know, we now have TVs that pretty much give us that experience. I'm, I, I have a, an iPod that, uh, it's a video iPod. It's what, a fourth generation iPod? And I can watch movies on my iPod and it's like that big, you know. You know, it's that big. And you go, TV. And if you don't have your earbuds in, you don't hear anything on the iPod. That's, that's the monk's movie screen. It's like, you know, like that. TV is that big. Amazing impact on the senses. So that is desire. Even though I don't want to cling to it, it's really hard. If you, once you surrender to that surround sound, you got it. It has impacted your senses. Guess what? Time to meditate. Meditating. The Navi are all over my meditation. You know, I'm seeing those white things that float through the air and come land on Jake's body, you know, the, the things that symbolize uh, magic spirituality, the sign, you know. Boy, oh boy, and when the tree falls, the giant tree falls, an avatar, like I carried that image with me for a long time, impacted. So there we go. That is desires. Now, if I had Kung Fu, if I had the real skill, I could sit through the avatar experience and not walk out with it. How difficult to leave the theater without carrying those images with us. Really hard. The Buddha said, if you would like to do what I did and end your suffering, here's how you do it. He said, you can't pinch your senses tight and go through the world like that. That won't work. You're using effort to repel, to get averse, to get away from senses. That's not the way. You, you, as soon as you're tired, you're back in the sense world because you're pinching it tight, right? That's not it. And he also said, if you 
clean and you pursue those senses, sense experiences, then you're missing your fullness. You're missing your own inherent full virtue because you're looking outside for what you think you're missing and lacking. I want it. I want it. More of it. You know, I want to hit the jackpot at Reno, at Harris Club. That's pursuing. Aversion, not it. Pursuing, not it. What is it? Sitting still, letting sight, sound, smells, taste, sensations of touch and dharmas touch your senses as they might, as they come, and then they're gone. Because, in fact, the Buddha's discovery was that our mind is co-creating that world every fresh instant of thought. We only know that when we're still and quiet. Our karma is making a movie of this world that our six senses serve as the screen for all the time. Boy, after seeing Avatar in that theater, I wanted the Redwoods bad. If we live in an urban environment where the helicopters are going by overhead, where we're on the freeway, where we're, TV is blasting at us, it's really hard to remember square one, which is six senses and nature. There's no surprise why monks and nuns go off into the deep mountains when they really want to get quiet. Because why? It reduces the sensory impact down to something that our, our body, body and mind goes, yeah, yeah, this is, this is the basic. Now I have to deal with what? The sound of the wind in the branches, the birds going by, the chill, the dew, the sunburn, the sound of bugs past my ears. That's a movie, but it's a cleaner, natural movie that humans have had to deal with since humanity began. It's not created by James Cameron and his team of animators. So it's, a little, it's one level closer to something that we're programmed to deal with. Sitting under the redwoods, we can't crave that experience either, nor can we shut it out if we're doing what the Buddha did. But the Buddha had to go to the woods to find that first encounter with nature. After he unpacked that and found the purity and the stillness of his own mind, then he could go back into the city of Shravasti, back into the palace, and not be moved. Okay, there's that subtlety. I don't know if, if I'm saying it well. But the Buddha's moment was what makes this teaching so ultimate, let's say, lofty, is he's giving us a technique for finding the, our nature in any situation. It's neither pursuing desire nor running from experience. It's neither love nor fear. 
neither craving nor aversion, right? Finding what is truly ours in the midst of pleasant situations and unpleasant situations. Why is this ultimate? Why do I say that? It's because if we're not meditating, if we're not on a spiritual path, what we do mostly and what most every amoeba does is pursue pleasure and run from pain. That's basic instinct. No cultivation required, right? No wisdom or compassion required. If you take an amoeba on a microscope cell, on a, with a microscope on a slide, on a, on a uh, what do you call it, a slide, and put something the amoeba doesn't like, a drop of it, you'll see it contract, right? Aversion, doesn't like it. If you put an amoeba in a culture that fosters its life, you'll see it expand and split and grow. Cancer does that, right? Every living thing does. That's basic, primal. The Buddha says, given that's true, do you want to gain mastery? Do you want to control that experience whereby when it's time to die, you have choice? Because that was his basic project, right? I'm looking for something other than simply dying when the time comes. That was what propelled him out of the palace into the wood. He says, if you can find that place beyond pursuing pleasure, running from pain, you have Kung Fu. You, have, you can find the Tao. And the Tao exists right in the middle of Avatar, right in the middle of arguments at the breakfast table, right in the middle of sages discussing the highest principles. You have found it in yourself. Nothing needed to add. Okay, that's what's subtle about this. Okay, so let's apply that now. They love the true real benefits of the Dharma. They don't love desires. Receiving the many kinds of desire. Okay, they don't grab them. They don't pursue things that are pleasant. They don't run from things that are unpleasant. They consider the Dharma that they hear they, sep- they go far away from grabbing, attaching practices. They don't cling to. They, they leave behind this pursuit of pleasure and running from pain. What's it called? Middle way. This is the middle way. That's the Buddha's discovery, is the middle way. Okay, so, that's something very wonderful. Master Shenhua embodied that all the time. We're, you know, we're sitting in the middle of the Chan session at Gold Mountain Monastery. Chan sessions are tough. Boy, I described those first three days of the 10,000 Buddhas and how difficult that is. Chan session is same first three days, but you add to it pain in the knees that just won't go away. Pain in the mind just won't go away. Your mind starts to tell you, you're crazy, you're nuts, you're going to die right here. What's your mother going to say? You know, I'm scared. 
You're, uh, your mind just chatted, get anything to get you to drop your legs and walk out of there. Uh, crazy, crazy, you know. And so what happens is people get intense and tight. And really, that's scary in their chan because life and death, you feel it. You, if you're really getting good, you, you see all this stuff coming up out of your mind. You're facing, you're in there in your deepest recesses of your consciousness, struggling with your bad habits. Okay. So what does Master Hua do? Uh, we're in the, the fifth day of the Chan session, seven-day Chan, fifth day. It's a Sunday, uh, it's a, a, a Thursday. Okay. Shrifu says, he throws open the doors, and he says, uh, everybody, ding, wake up. He says, I want you all to meet... Uh, uh, so-and-so, Atman, uh, Mrs. Atman, she is a yoga teacher from the new yoga studio here in the Mission District, and I want her to demonstrate a headstand. And so this woman says, well, thank you very much, thank you very much. So she has her leotard on, and she does a headstand right in the Chan Hall in the middle, and is instructing us all that next break, we should all practice the headstand. Shurfu has us all practicing headstands right in the middle of the We're all going... I can't believe it. And Shiva says, I do a headstand every single day. You didn't know I do yoga in my own apartment. He says, you never come yet. So we're like, <laughs> we're just bursting into laughter. Because here's this yoga teacher doing her headstand, teaching us to find points of doing a perfect headstand, yoga style. Then she does salute to the sun, Surya Namaskar, and teaches us all. And about half an hour into this, all the leg pain has vanished our tense, you know, uptight, not tight. Fear has gone away and we're like, we're relaxed. Next time she goes away and Sherpa says, go back to meditating. Mm -hmm. You know, we're meditating. It's like, oh, thank you, Sherpa. The, the too tight is we're back to, you know. How skillful is that? Who in the world would have the insight to know take the pulse of the meditators, they're way too tight because they're in there struggling with those. What do you do? Do a headstand, yoga headstand, right in the middle of the channel. And, thank you very much. You know, and back to middle, back to the middle. Remember the teaching in the 42 sections, the Buddha uh, heard a musician and the musician's sound on their lute, it says, was sad. So the Buddha, and he knew that this monk was going to return to lay life. He's going to quit. So the Buddha said to him, he said apparently it was a man, he said, now what did you do when you were back in the world? And the person said, I was a musician. The Buddha said, oh, musician. Hmm. So tell me, when you tuned your instrument, what happened when you tuned the strings too tight? And... The musician said, well, the sound didn't carry. It was brief. He said, what happened when you tune your strings too loose? He said, there was no tone. Thud, thud. So, what happened when you tuned your strings just right? Said the Buddha. And the musician said, the sound carried. Said the Buddha. And the Buddha said, oh, very good. He said, why don't you tune your cultivation the same way? Neither too tight nor too loose. And the musician monk 
former musician went, ding, right? The light bulb went on. I'm way too tight. So he relaxed and the monk carried on. So, skillful teacher, right? Finding the middle way. Yuan li qu zhao heng. They stay far away from qu, seeking, grasping, zhao, attaching practices. They cultivate, but they don't get uptight in their practice. Why? Every practice is an expedient. It's just a method, a technique. In reality, when you're awake, every practice is the Tao and no practice is needed because every breath is completely natural. Somebody, but now, this being said, if this room were full of young monks and nuns, I couldn't talk completely like this. Because why? There is a time when we leave home. We're mostly lay people here. We have another bhikshu in the room. Tashing Fasher's here. There is a time when you're turning around those outflowing desire-seeking energies. And at that point, you have to keep on it. Otherwise, the energy of habit will wash you away. It's true. So I said to Master Shren Hua, I said, Shifu, one day I said, we hear about the hundred foot pole, right? Cultivation is like climbing a hundred foot pole. And think about it. And I said, Shifu, how tight do you have to hang on to the hundred foot pole? And he said, tight enough not to fall off. How tight is that? If you don't hold on, you won't make it to the top. But if you hold on too tight, you won't make it to the top. You won't get there. Not easy, huh? Not easy. So cultivation is like that. You have to, his answer was, hang on tight enough to not fall off. Okay. There is a, then he wrote a verse so it's called, Xiu Dao Ru Deng Bai Chi Gan, Gan Chang, Shang Tou, Bu, I shouldn't quote it if I can't remember. Um, the, it goes like this. When you cultivate the way, it's like climbing a hundred foot pole. If you don't advance, you'll certainly fall. When you get to the top of the pole, if you can take one more step, then you're free to travel anywhere in all ten directions. So the Chan school celebrates getting to the pole top and taking one more step into space. That's when your cultivation gets sublime. Then you're free to travel. But that's another level. That's, we're back with the bodhisattvas practicing being soft-hearted, kind-hearted. So they enjoy the real benefits of dharma. Pursuing desires has lost its appeal for them. Because why? They have determined that they're walking a spiritual path. Before that time, if we're like putting one toe in the pool, that's all right. The fault is not in Reno or Las Vegas or Disneyland or your own TV or the Avatar film. The fault is in the mind that still thinks the good part is getting desire, clinging to it. What's wrong with that? How many desires have you ever clung to and kept? The nature of desire is hard to satisfy. 
changes, transient. That's the problem. The thing that clings is transient. The body itself, we get older. The things that we enjoyed change, right? So the Buddha saw clearly into the heart of that and said, there's never going to be a single desire that when I finally get it, hits the spot. There's not going to be any amount of money that when I finally get that amount of money, I say, that's it. No more money needed. I got all I need. The mind always, because living beings have greed, always says, a little more would be better. If this is good, more is better. That's the way we are. It's really hard to be satisfied. Desire consumes more, a little bit more, a little different, something a little different. That's the problem with pursuing desire. So if we're not at that point, the Buddha is not there shaking his finger in your face saying, bad, wrong, bad Buddhist. He's saying, no, these bodhisattvas are people who have at some point said, I'm looking for more than the process of running for pleasure, running from desire, running from pain, pursuing pleasure, avoiding pain. There's more to it. That's why we study bodhisattvas. Because there are people right in the middle of the six senses, they've said, what else is there? Is there more? And the Buddha says, yes, there is. Here's the path. Here's what you do. Okay, they enjoy the real benefits of Dharma. Pursuing desire has lost its appeal for them. They reflect upon the Dharma they have heard. They no longer grasp or cling. Hard to do. Um, here's somebody. Tang Dynasty minister whose name was Peixiu. Peixiu, famous minister who served Tang Xuanzong, the, the, the uh, emperor of the Tang Dynasty called Xuanzong. Peixiu um, I was actually going to uh, let somebody else tell his story. Because he's kind of a... This was a little bit of history. I think I'll do that just for fun. Today's newscaster is a uh, friendly fellow. I'm going to tell you the news today. Uh, famous Tang Dynasty minister who I saw myself. Dragons live a long time, you know. And uh, we can be really big, we can be really little, we change. So here's what I saw myself. He sent his son to be a monk. He sent his son to cultivate. I was really impressed. 
Because I don't want my son to be a monk. Huh? Frankly, I wanted to be a dragon. <laughs> Thank goodness I only have daughters. <laughs> so, Peixiao, the prime minister, sent his son to cultivate, and he wrote a poem. And his poem goes, With grief, I send my child off to enter the gate of emptiness. In China, where I come from, they call it Kongman. By day and by night, he must do good deeds. Don't let your eyes follow the pollution of pleasure and money. Keep your Tao Xin, keep your way mind by day and by night through heat and cold. Read the sutras, recite the Buddha's name, take your teacher's advice. How am I doing? I'm doing fine. Hold your vows, watch your mind. Repay the four kinds of kindness. One day, you will suddenly become a great vessel here on earth and among the gods. You will be the honored one. Peixiu wrote that for his son. Pretty impressive. Yeah, I thought so. Is there more? Yeah, there's one more. Well, why don't you tell everybody? Okay. South of the river, north of the river, the Orioles cry. I'm sending my child to cross Tiger Creek. Cultivate until the waters end and the mountains fall. All by itself, the time will come for your transformation. I like that a lot. Yeah, I do too. What do you like best? Mm, the fact that he's grieving, but he's doing it anyway. It's never easy to send a child off to cultivate. There's always the pain of separation because parents are like that. That's why I keep my daughters at home. Mm. <clears throat> so, But he still could do it. And he sent his son off to transform. Pretty impressive. Yeah, I thought so. Thank you very much. More news next week. So, that's the story. He was, uh, Peixio was a uh, successful emperor, a successful minister. And he, um, he was such a devout Buddhist at the same time that he was a good Minister, for example, here's one thing he did. Um, when he took over in, uh, what was it? might have been Luoyang. I'm not sure where it was. The, um, the process of bringing rice into the capital was so corrupt that 40% of the rice that was supposed to come in to fill the granaries, because in the Tang Dynasty, it was a really good government, they had what was called the ever-full granaries. And if there was extra rice, they would store it up 
And then when there was famine, they would give out the rice. Okay? So 40% of the rice that was supposed to come in came in. 60% got siphoned off because of corruption. That's a dharma the Chinese have known for forever. So what did he do? Pei Xiu was such a good minister that he managed to bring in 70% of the rice. He increased it from something like 400,000 bushels to 1.4 million bushels of rice. They kept records. So he was a good... You, you couldn't stamp it all out, corruption, but he himself uh, was able to do it without causing, without being assassinated. Because if you are in the face of the other ministers who are corrupt, they will get rid of you. Well, he was able to please them and also get to get the, the, the granaries full for the, the Lao Bai Xing, for the people. Pretty impressive. That's the kind of goodness that he was. And at the same time, he was such a good Buddhist that he um, spent all his time in monasteries. He built many, many monasteries. He uh, encouraged people to leave home and... As prime minister, he used his dharma name to sign things. He, he preferred to use his farming as his name. So he was a, a really awakened uh, bureaucrat. So that's, um, that's the story of Peixio, uh, how difficult it is to climb to the peak of power and still keep your righteousness. So that's our man, Peixio. He was in the ninth century, uh, the last century of the Tang, Tang Shenzong. Okay, so if our question is, how do we, um, how do we do more good? That's really uh, Master Xuanhua's constant exhortation, and the Sutra too. It's that these bodhisattvas base themselves on goodness, not on psychic power. Uh, our second verse was talking about that middle way, right in between attachment and rejection. Very human, but the foundation of that is this goodness, this deep, deep goodness. And the way I interpret what uh, Master Shenhua taught was the goodness, it can't ever be too much. You, in order to cultivate, you have to have both wisdom and blessings. And the blessings is the goodness part. So a cultivator is always doing good. Here are these bodhisattvas, they're always, their goodness increases by day and by night. right? So we always, you never get to a point where you say, I've got enough, I can spend all my blessings. You have to constantly keep your good heart, your soft, repentant, self-respecting uh, integrity heart alive and working. At the same time, you're cultivating that middle way, right? Sitting still so that you can sit in front of Avatar and not be overwhelmed by it. And you could probably meditate right in the middle of Reno and just be as gentle and as kind and as ungreedy as you were if you're in the desert outside of Reno. Not so easy, huh? That's why there aren't more Buddhas every day. But if you think about it, this is the peak of humanity. This is humanity at its very, very best. What are we looking for? More money? It's good. 
But there's more. There's more to it than that. Okay, so I really, really appreciate people coming to look into the sutra at night on Saturday night. Think of all the things we could be doing, but instead we're like opening these ancient texts and going, what is here? What in the world do these have to say to me? How joyful. There aren't many places tonight in the world where the Abhatamska Sutra is being celebrated. This is one of them. Okay, let's transfer the merit and do a little bit of music. The dedication is there in your text. If 